Welcome to Creative Conversations, the podcast by Creative Ventures, where we muse about how the world is changing, opportunities in startups, and just our thoughts on making good decisions and running a systematic investment process in an environment with ambiguity, uncertainty, and rapid change. In other words, just venture investing. Enjoy! All right. Hello, everyone. We are back, and this time it's just me, so uh, I will be walking through the idea of systematic investment and what it means in the context of venture capital. So in terms of covering this, uh, just in just thinking about what matters for this, what doesn't, uh, it's helpful to talk about both what systematic investing is, why you would do it, and how you would actually implement it in practice. So, without further ado, let's jump into it. So, what does systematic investment mean? Not even just in venture capital, but just in general. So, systematic investment, there's a lot of different ways you can think about it, uh, but among the most common is thinking about it as a process-driven style of investment. So what does that mean? That means that you would think about what sort of rules and processes that you'd put in place when you're thinking about doing different investments versus just going for pure, say, return. Now, if thinking about that from sort of first blush, that doesn't necessarily make sense, right? Because the entire purpose of investment is to get the best risk-adjusted return. But the problem is, if you're just thinking in terms of trying to get to return, how do you actually do that? The trouble is, in the context of investment, and I guess now we're getting a little bit to why you would do systematic investment, the trouble is when you're doing money management, similar to how you would do a game like, say, poker, it is not entirely clear all the time whether or not you're actually succeeding at what you're doing. Now, what does that mean? So, in the context of, say, poker, you can be on a winning streak for quite a while, and that winning streak can be driven purely by luck in terms of what cards turn over well for you. That will not necessarily last, as all sorts of gamblers can tell you in Vegas, you may feel like you have a hot hand and you're on a winning streak and you're doing great, But by the end of the night, or maybe even by the end of the week, uh, you end up going home with a lot lighter wallet. It's a similar thing in terms of money management. There's a lot of randomness in the process, and just as human beings, we have a lot of trouble actually figuring out whether or not something is working or not, because we're just not really good at dealing with distributions. We're pretty good at dealing with cause and effect that happens pretty clearly, but we're not great at dealing with distributions. So the way to try to solve that is by using a process, again, similar to poker, for those of you who are familiar with systems of poker, uh, from a philosophical perspective of a professional poker player, even if you lose a specific hand, that doesn't necessarily matter as long as you played it correctly there's always going to be the intervening factor of luck that you can't really do much about, but you can expect that if you have a winning process for playing poker, you will have long-term success over time. 
So not for any single game, but for the overall outcome that you have at the end. So sort of rewinding all the way back. What is systematic investment? It's a process-driven strategy. And what we mean by a process-driven strategy is a strategy that pretty strictly abides by the rules and processes put in place beforehand before ever jumping into it. So uh, what is, what, how is that different than, say, how many people in, say, venture capital approach things? Uh, well, in terms of venture, uh, some folks do have a process, but in just investment in general, a lot of uh, investors think about what is a good or bad investment through the lens of intuition. So they might not call it that. It may be experience, it may be gut feel, it may be all sorts of different things. You may even describe it as, okay, it's all about the team and I feel good about this team because I've seen a lot of teams that are like this and you might call it pattern recognition. All of these are different ways of essentially saying something seems right even upon casual, let's even not just say it's emotion, even upon just sort of a casual initial analysis, this team, company, what have you, looks good. And because of that, I will invest. A lot of whatever it is, even if you try to put a lens of analysis on top of that, inevitably, if you're playing in the moment, again, similar to if you're just playing poker in the moment, you may have intuitions that actually do follow implicitly a good strategy. On the other hand, you may also be dragged to and fro based on the emotion that you feel at that particular point in time. That is specifically what we try to get around with systematic investment and with a process-driven strategy. It's not without cost, by the way. Uh, that's one thing that, you know, as I describe this and among the scientists and engineers out there, uh, the, one of the refrains may be, of course, this seems entirely logical. Uh, but it seems logical, it sounds good in the abstract, right up until the moment you come across a company that you are absolutely certain will be a complete success. Uh, you know that right now you have the next Google or Facebook right in front of you, and you have to invest. That is when the rubber hits the road, and if you are a very disciplined, systematic investor, you might say no, because you haven't done enough analysis in the area. Or, just in this case, no matter how strong your emotions feel, different countervailing forces that you of analysis that you have come up with beforehand tell you that this is not a good investment. That, those are the cases where you end up having the greatest conflict in this, and not just emotional, but in some cases you are actually passing on good opportunities. You didn't decide to go look into this particular area, and for that you are slower than everyone else, and you have missed that particular bandwagon. As a systematic investor, the thought process is, that's fine. I may lose this particular pot of money. Again, drawing back from a poker analogy. I may lose this particular pot of money. It may be a really big one. I pro may, If I had just pushed through, I could have gotten it. But because my eye is on the long-term prize, I'm going to continue following the strategy that I had laid out with a calmer head beforehand.
that's one of the things, again, that's hard about this. Because one thing that most people hew to but don't even realize is that we don't, as investors, as people in general, we don't always necessarily hew to trying to do the best we can. <laughs> Again, it sounds a little bit weird, but in many cases, what I've seen over time is career-wise, uh, it's easier to actually fail conventionally, do the same thing that everyone else does, rather than potentially fail in a particularly different way. So in terms of one of the <laughs> one of the things that we saw a few years ago in terms of crypto, there have been a lot of well-known investors that have basically went all in on crypto, uh, both in terms of the blockchain bets that they were doing, or just cryptocurrencies, and lost pretty spectacularly as a lot of it fell apart. Uh, some of them still believe it over time, but either way, a lot of them still have their reputations perfectly intact because they failed in the same way that everyone else did. Same thing for a lot of the investors if we're talking about uh, folks in the public markets uh, during the dot-com bubble. A lot of the folks who put a lot of money into it and lost a lot of money in the dot-com bust are have their reputations perfectly intact because they lost money at the same time everyone else did. No one could have foreseen this at the same time. Someone like uh, GMO, uh, I forget the exact acronym, but they are a stock trading group. Uh, they jumped in. They called the top of the bubble, or, well, not the top, they called the bubble uh, somewhere in like 1996 and started shorting the market then. So if you have any sense of the history of it, that was a very, very painful ride. They lost a lot of clients, and in the end, they you know, you can argue timing, they didn't even do that well because they ended up getting margin cold, losing so many clients, even if they were right at the end. Uh, but the thing was, you know, them being right at the end, they weren't exactly lauded as heroes. They were simply begrudgingly right. If anything, people were less sympathetic to them than they were to other investors who had also lost a lot of money in the dot-com bust, uh, because then they could all feel sympathy and lament uh, their losses together. So anyway, the issue, the thing in terms of being a process-driven investor in this way, you can miss out on big things and you also run potentially a lot of reputation risk because a lot of the decisions that you're making come from analysis that isn't necessarily easy to follow, isn't necessarily easy to explain, especially not within the scope of some sort of current market mania that's happening at the time. So all that being said, it sounds intuitively, <laughs> just based on me talking about it this way, like it should be the right thing, the rational and logical thing to do in terms of investing, being process driven. But why do you do it really? Because there are definitely investors who do quite well from the conventional strategy of going with their instincts. They've honed them over time. They've become a great human uh, market detector. Then, you know, a lot of different people do actually make that argument for themselves, uh, just in terms of how well they've honed their intuition or pattern recognition uh, abilities. 
maybe they've embedded themselves so well in different networks that they can just have strong teams come to them and they'll just throw money and just have whatever it is happen, right? Uh, you can argue that one's kind of approaching a process, but you know, a lot of the way of judging teams actually does still come down to this sort of pattern recognition thing, but putting the practicalities aside, there are other ways of making money. And, in fact, most of those other ways are a lot easier, <laughs> Uh, because if you're actually trying to create a process for investing in all these things, you would be spending a lot of time and a lot of energy looking into areas that might not actually pan out. Uh, there's been quite a few areas that we have looked into that we thought had a lot of promise and have ultimately come up dry. Uh, one example, at least based on our investment style, other folks may be able to make successes out of it, but based on our investment style, we didn't find actually many opportunities for us in cybersecurity, for example. Exactly why? Again, <laughs> kind of long and complicated, uh, as many of these uh, particular things are, but simply enough speaking, uh, because you should be able to at least simplify down the explanation of things, even if the true explanation takes much longer. Simply enough said, at least for cybersecurity, the trends change too much for us to actually catch them with our systematic process. So the next big thing is constantly the next big thing in cybersecurity, even though on the face of it, it looked like it was an area that we would be able to apply our systematic process to, since we're getting more devices, uh, more attack services for cyber um, cyber attacks over time. Seems like a great secular trend that will persist for a long time. Turns out, in terms of practicalities, when rubber hits the road, things change all the time in cybersecurity, so can't really do it. But anyway, that's an example of a case where, yeah, you, have to, you put a lot of effort into it, you actually look into it a lot, you build up the relationships, you talk to all these different experts in the field, you start building up your relationships to different funds, and ultimately, you just come to the conclusion that, no, that's not an area that we want to pursue. And that happens a lot in terms of digging dry wells uh, to use a, uh, well, I suppose you could use it for real wells, but just to use a, you know, oil and gas term for it. Uh, you dig a lot of dry wells. You spend a lot of effort that doesn't necessarily come up with rewards. And in many other cases, maybe you spend a bunch of effort uh, to learn something, and you would have actually made the same decision at the end of the day uh, in a, with a more intuitive process based on whatever it was. So there are a lot of potential costs to doing things this way. What's the benefit? Well, the real reason for why we care about it so much is, at least for us personally, and ideally for the companies that we invest into, for us personally we care because we want to actually know that what we are doing is right. So we want to actually know that the results that we see, which are pretty good so far for us, are from skill and not just luck. So again, uh, in terms of having hot hands, having just one great investment, it's actually kind of hard to tell whether something is skill or luck, especially in venture. It's a little bit easier in public markets if you're in a hedge fund or something, because, well, you have a lot, each day is basically a new test for you, potentially, depending on your time horizon. 
uh, and you can very quickly get repetitions in terms of iterations of things are going as I expect or things are not going as I expect. That's not really the case with venture. Uh, if you really want to measure success or failure, the real success or failure is ultimate exit, right? So, for example, even even markups, uh, which you can say is a sort of a market-driven way of looking at whether or not your investment is succeeding, aren't really proof against market manias, right? It doesn't really tell you necessarily where skill is. After all, we work got marked up a lot <laughs> to tens of to practically sixty something billion dollars by the end uh, before it quickly deflated as it tried to IPO to. 60 to 40 to 20 to not IPOing at all. So you have to potentially wait for a long, long time to know whether or not you're actually having any success in venture, which from our perspective, just looking at it and thinking about it, right, that makes it pretty hard to actually build good intuition. You may be able to argue from a stock analyst perspective, just staring at Bloomberg screens all day. Maybe you can build some intuition. It's kind of hard, though, if your real way of pattern recognizing is playing out over, maybe you're even watching a lot of startups, but playing over many startups, but all of them take 10 years to turn around. Yeah, maybe five, five, 10 years, something like that, but very, very long cycle time. So for us, the idea of doing systematic investment is to try to get a better sense that we actually know what's going on. And ideally, because we have a process that we're using, we can repeat whatever results that we have. So just to sort of recap, one is a matter of knowing whether or not we actually have skill. The second one is to be able to make the process repeatable. And then the third point is actually the one I pretty much alluded to, which is rapidly making your cycle, t making your cycle time much more rapid. So instead of us actually needing to wait for markups, which are fallible at the end, or ultimate exit, which takes five or 10 years, what we do is we actually have a very specific set of criteria where we look, use our research, look through, make concrete decisions on companies, whether or not we want to invest or not, give a reason why. And then both for the companies we invest in and the companies that we pass on, we actually watch to see whether or not that reason why plays out or not. So what that means is for us, success is not that a company does that we invest in does well. It's still a failure if we invest in a company that happens to do well, but we get the reason wrong. Um, if you want to use another sort of sports analogy, you can, it's like playing pool, right? Uh, it doesn't matter if you get the eight ball in the pocket, if you called the wrong pocket. Well, depends on the rules, but at least in certain, certain, certain rules of it. So for us, it doesn't matter if we successfully get good returns out of a company if we picked it for the wrong reasons. And at the same time, it doesn't help either if a company that we passed on does poorly, but does it for the wrong reasons again. The idea is to actually get good enough in terms of skill and research to have some level of ability to try to have specific reasons for both success and failures. 
challenges that the company will face and things that they should find easy. Because that gives us a lot of different checkpoints to be able to see whether or not our process is actually, our process in creating knowledge and creating skill here in evaluating investments is actually bearing fruit. It gives us a lot more different places where we can check, is it working or is it not working? It'd be very surprising, not impossible, but very surprising if we predict everything right, essentially, and it ends up going wrong at the end. It might, but just like poker, if you're basically playing every hand exactly as you would expect you would should, uh, just in terms of from a game theoretic perspective, even if you lose at the very end just out of blind luck, that's okay, because you actually would be expecting to make money over time based on your strategy that you're following. So it's a similar sort of logic for us. At the end of the, the day, trying to be a systematic investor is really about being able to have a process that you can trust works, you're able to repeat using it, and you're able to actually learn things from. Uh, and it's important because these interlock together. It's hard to be repeatable <laughs> if it's not a set process that you can trust, and you can't really learn from it either. Forget about even just having more, like, touch points, right? Having more checkpoints to be able to learn things. If you don't have a consistent process, there's nothing you can iterate on. You, uh, so I, I'm not going to name different names, but over time I've known different investors to have ex been able to explain away every single failure that they've had with some sort of extraordinary circumstance that no one could have possibly foreseen. Uh, people who know me at this point know that I sarcastically say, uh, yeah, and no one could have ever foreseen that, because that is a refrain I actually get a lot. And I apologize for those who have actually sat over beers or something and made that refrain to me. I do still sympathize in the moment, but just in terms of viewpoint, strategically speaking, uh, similar in terms of tough love here, I do think a lot of things you can actually foresee. So in terms of that, you if you can foresee it, or you can try to foresee it, or you fail to foresee it, but in all of those, it's not an extraordinary circumstance that pops up out of nowhere, but it's something that it's driven from a process that you are following. You can actually do something to fix the process. If everything is a one in a million idiosyncratic thing, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can learn from that experience because it's completely unique in the history of the world. And there's nothing you can fix in your process because there's nothing to fix, right? So again, all three of these different characteristics, the fact of having a trustable process, having a repeatable process, and having a process you can learn from, all of these fit together and are, are, ba are basically have to fit together in terms of having a process-driven strategy. It is fundamentally the greatest benefit of investing in this way. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of effort. A lot of people misunderstand it. You pass on opportunities all the time that you think that you just feel in your gut are good. And it's just, yeah, it's a lot of effort and it's less fun at the end of the day, right? Uh, you know, just casting about having fun with poker, just playing by your gut, 
is a lot more fun. Well, it depends on your definition of fun, but you know, emotionally speaking, it's more fun than flying by. The, it's more fun flying by the seat of your pants playing than it is to have a s- extremely rational, methodical process going through it. Of course, us doing this, there's a satisfaction in doing something well, right? But at the same time, it is harder in a lot of these different ways. All right. Now, that is the logic of what it is specifically in terms of systematic investment and why. Getting into how, again, at the end of the day, it really just boils down to, for us, having concrete reasons for why we say yes and say no, and then having very concrete understanding of what is it that is actually going to happen after we invest. So we have very, so we have, we use Trello, but we have a Trello board where we have to all vote yes, no, why, so that there's a concrete written record, which is very important. People revise their uh, memories of what they thought or did not think all the time. That is prevented by actually having a contemporaneous account that says this is exactly what you thought, so that you can be clear, yeah, you actually thought this, or no, you didn't actually think this. You may say that you had reservations if an investment fails later or something like that, but if you don't write it down, it doesn't count. And in fact, uh, just based on the nature of what we know about human memory, if you didn't write it down, you should actually doubt whether or not you actually correctly remembered that you did actually feel that way. So, we do that, force votes, put it down on paper. This also lets us actually tell startups, uh, which is a great, was it, which is the thing that founders find refreshing. Tell startups why or why not we're investing. And if they have true, uh, data or reasons that overturn ours, we will happily re-examine things. We aren't just telling people reasons because we want them to go away. Uh, from being a founder, talking with a lot of founders, and working in venture, it is very much the case that a lot of reasons given are often just uh, surface reasons to make you go away uh, as a founder. So the most common one is the market is not big enough. Uh, it doesn't really matter how big the market is, isn't, doesn't matter how much analysis you do, market isn't big enough, don't believe in the market. Uh, that's just code for just go away. I don't really feel like investing in you. Maybe I don't know why, but I just don't. So, uh, for us, we prevent that. We don't allow that. And ideally, that's also being kind to different founders as well, being able to actually tell them what we think and be thought partners with them. Uh, because we've actually had founders come back to us later and say, hey, I thought about what you said and I changed some things that in my strategy. Uh, some of these cases would have been nice if they had told us, but that's not necessary. <laughs> uh, we're glad that they got the benefit out of it. Uh, though in other cases they have told us and um, in certain cases we have ended up investing after that. So we make sure to actually have real reasons for why we're doing something or not doing something. Uh, we, when we decide to actually move forward with a company, we have a detailed investment memo actually going through all the different business, technical, um, and different operational challenges or market structure challenges that they might face. Um, 
and we actually list out all these things. And all of this, by the way, is backed by a robust research process where we have delved into, we've had thesis reasons for thinking that these markets exist. We've delved into them very deeply, and we have actually clearly spelled out what the market structure looks like and the challenges inherent in it. Just giving an example, uh, among our three thesis pillars, quote-unquote, two, two of which are driven by demographics, one of which is labor shortages across the world, uh, and issues in terms of especially manual labor and finding folks to do different jobs, uh, and the second one being healthcare and health, rising healthcare costs due to demographic changes that are causing the populations around the world to age and also to have uh, be more chronically sick. Uh, and the last pillar is a lot of different effects that come from climate change. Just diving a little bit into, say, the healthcare sector, healthcare costs are going up. A lot of that is because our system is better equipped to treat acute conditions rather than chronic conditions. We're very good at uh, saving someone from a heart attack, send them to a cath lab, do all sorts of interventions, get them back up and going. We're not so good at figuring out how to prevent heart attacks. A lot of the interventions that we have are somewhat weak. We, again, don't do prevention particularly well. Um, and we often don't have good drugs or other incentives within the system to actually do that. So we've actually laid it out. For example, why are some of these challenges there? Well, one issue is that if you look at our system uh, in the U.S., which, by the way, drives a lot of the rest of the world because a lot of the healthcare innovation, innovation healthcare spending is concentrated in the U.S. I think some stats have put it at around 90% of the innovation R&D spending uh, is in the U.S. market. Um, a lot of the system in the U.S. drives a lot of the world. The system in the U.S. is not a single-payer government system like many others, so it is separated between insurance companies that pay, which are often employer-driven, versus um, hospital systems, which are paid by these payer systems to provide care. What's some of the issues with this? Well, one of which, is, one of the issues in this is hospitals care about what they're reimbursed for by payers. They can do a lot of services, and if they don't get paid for it, their businesses, they will eventually go bankrupt. Okay, so that causes some of its own issues, but put that one aside from now, for now. Within our current paradigm, payers, because insurance, in other words, health insurance, is linked with individuals. Uh, so payers keep certain, keep lives, uh, as the term goes, uh, for the all called impatience for to make it a little less morbid, perhaps, uh, they keep patients for a certain period of time. Because the healthcare system in the U.S. is tied to employers, it is also tied to the average, so the average, because it's tied to employers, the average amount of time that a payer keeps a specific patient is also tied to the length of time that a employee typically stays with an employer. Now, of course, you know, you might change employers, you might go from the same system to the same system, you might go Aetna to Aetna, Cigna to Cigna, Kaiser to Kaiser, Blue Cross to Blue Cross, or just some sort of compatible network, uh, but oftentimes you don't, just based on the way these are geographically dispersed and contracts between individual employers. 
because of that, insurance companies often only keep patients for three or four years. So, you know, just half-jokingly, you can talk to an insurance executive and like, ask them, and, you know, ask them, why can't we do preventative care? And, you know, the answer, cynically, to some degree, would be, well, you know, we could pay for preventative preventative care today to save our competitors money tomorrow, right? Or, in this case, you know, 10, 20, or 30 years from now. This creates a lot of different challenges for preventative medicine, uh, but again, it's just part of how the market structure works. This is the kind of research that we do. That one's a little, still actually a little surface level for what we typically do, but we actually pull apart the different market players and figure out what actually can work within that system. And within that system, we then lay that all out on paper, well, in writing anyway, everything's digital nowadays, but in writing, uh, and create a contemporaneous record for ourselves that we can then learn from, be held accountable to, and be able to use a lot of this logic to keep repeating successful investments in the space or improve our investments because we realize that we miss certain things. So that's some of how we do this sort of thing. Uh, we've laid it out in some of our longer podcasts or longer pieces on specific markets as well. Uh, but essentially, that's how we think about systematic investing within the venture space, which obviously to some degree we as just as investors think that this is a good way of doing things but we think it's especially valuable in the venture space uh, because of the nature of it how long the cycle times are and how much uncertainty there just frankly is um, because at the end of the day how do you know you're good if all you really had was one big hit that made your entire fund and that sort of made your reputation for your next couple of funds which is the situation that we see today and at least for ourselves, uh, if we're putting a lot of our energy and time into this, we want to make sure that it's something that actually works. And of course, it is only fair to our LPs and invest our investors as well that we know that what we're selling is actually what we're selling. Uh, and also, ideally, for our companies too, in basically knowing that our vouch means something and we can actually be good strategic partners for them in under, really understanding their market and being able to have uh, strong, good strategic conversations with them that add value over time. All right. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you typically go for this sort of thing. If you like what you hear here, uh, visit us online at creativeventures.vc. Take a look at our other content and subscribe to our newsletter. If you want to get in contact, email us at invest at creativeventures.vc or tweet me, James, uh, at A-V-A-N-T-O-S. Thanks and hope to see you next time.